scandal, scandal. Oh, we got scandal involving Georgia's newest senator, Kelly Leffler, who I've got an interview with at the top of the next hour. And we recorded it before the news broke about the scandal. I will get to the scandal. Uh, if it is a scandal, she has a plausible defense. Uh, I'll get to that here as well. But I, I got asked, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to say which one, but I want to help. Uh, and I want to to go through the the numbers and and start doing this hourly, even though the numbers aren't going to change uh, for county by county. I am told there are actually reports now this morning coming out of several counties in Georgia, not currently listed, Effingham County being among them. Uh, I believe Carroll County will be in there and, and several others of the spread of COVID-19. Uh, I want to keep everybody up to date and informed, but let me give you the audits right now again. Keep in mind that we do not have uh, updated numbers until noon. This is the number provided by the state. We know it is over 300 cases now or close to it. Um, it'll certainly, if it's not by noon today, by tomorrow, it'll be over 300 cases in the state. Um, but we expect a skyrocket. Uh, don't panic by that. The governor, uh, Dr. Toomey, the head of the public health, has, has said repeatedly, don't worry about it, in large part because uh, we are in a situation where the testing is now expanded dramatically. And because the testing has expanded dramatically, the numbers of people who are infected uh, we know is going to go up simply because we have such better access to testing. That number is going to continue to go up in addition to the viral spread. It's going to go up because of the testing. But right now, let me give you uh, the breakdown just so you have a sense of where things are in the state. Again, the numbers are from noon yesterday, 287 cases and 10 deaths. Um, 1% of the cases are in those age uh, newborn to 17, 46% of the cases are 18 to 59, 35% of the cases are over 60, uh, 18% are unknown. Uh, we have um, female 46%, male 53%, 1% are unknown. Um, you know, I don't know what the other 57 genders are broken down right now. They just give me 46% female, 53 male. Um, we have, uh, confirmed cases by County 66 in Fulton, 37 Cobb, 26 Bartow, 22 DeKalb, 20 Darty, 16 Cherokee, 12 Gwinnett, nine Fayette, eight Clark, six Lowndes, six Floyd, six Clayton, five Hall, four in Gordon, uh, three in Lee, Coweta, Paldy, Newton, Forsyth, and Henry County, two in Early Glen, Lawrence, Richmond, and Troop County. Yes, Lawrence County and Glen County and Early County. You got cases now. And then one in each of these. Uh, Rockdale, Houston, Charlton, Whitfield, Polk, Columbia, Barrow, Bibb, Peach, Muskogee. Uh, six people, we don't know where their counties are. The number in, in middle Georgia definitely going to go up. It was a doctor in Houston County who was the first infected person, uh, and that's going to impact the numbers there. I'm sure if he came into contact with patients and others, uh, we will see that. Uh, where I am in Bibb County now, we got one. That number obviously going to go up. Uh, I talked to myself, a doctor, who said, he very much expects to see that number change. Now, uh, let me get into we, we, we'll I'll spend more time on this later and on the governor's response in his press conference from yesterday. I want to get into the, the scandal of the day in Washington, D.C. Uh, Senator Richard Burr and Senator Kelly Leffler from the newest senator in the, in the Senate and the senator from Georgia both sold over a million dollars worth of stock in. Uh, 
after receiving a closed-door briefing in January on how bad the virus was going to get. Now, let me give this to you in perspective because that the headline is outrageous. And I know a lot of people, I man, I heard from so many people last night, I will never vote for this woman. Let me put this in perspective. This, these are these are not excuses. I've said I will vote for her. Everybody needs to acknowledge this is a bad story for her, and she needs to get a handle on it. Um, and if if she didn't do what she says she did, then then no one's going to vote for her, myself included. I will explain that to you. But let me put it in perspective. Uh, why it's actually worse for Richard Burr, North Carolina, is he essentially his entire net worth was in the stock market, a couple million dollars, and he liquidated it after being the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, got a closed-door briefing on the extent of the virus. Leffler's money, it was a couple million dollars in stock trades, sold some, moved into Citrix, a company that is benefiting from the viral situation. That's why hers really looks suspicious. Um, but uh, Burr has not yet offered a defense. Burr has not offered an explanation. Uh, what Leffler says is that her money is uh, outside of her control, and she had no knowledge of the sales, neither did her husband, and no influence on the sales. Now, uh, for those of you who say that that boggles the mind, how can it be? Uh, there's a thing called a blind trust that a lot of people who get into public trust put their money in. Uh, you essentially give it to a trust company that then gives it to a, a, a group of people to manage. And the group of people who manage the trust have no communication with the person whose money it is. And there is a paper trail of uh, documented instances of conversations between the overarching company and that person to keep track of. So if the paper trail is clear for Leffler and it really is a blind trust, then she really can say she had no knowledge of this and was not involved in it. Uh, but if she can, if it's not a blind trust, if it's not just outside advisors, she gave people outside of her control and said, y'all manage this for me. And she knows who they are, but she didn't put it in a blind trust. No one's going to actually believe she didn't in interfere. In fact, a lot of people won't believe that she didn't interfere with a blind trust, even though it would have been virtually impossible and there'd be a paper trail. But if it was outside advisors, uh, yeah, she can she can show there's no paper trail, but no one's really going to believe it if it's not a blind trust. And we don't know the setup yet. Uh, she did come out last night on social media and say the story is, is uh, garbage, that she had no knowledge of the sales, neither did her husband. It was handled by an outside group where she placed her money when she got into the Senate, uh, essentially to avoid uh, any sort of ethical implications. And yet here we are. We will see. I, the Collins, Collins supporters, of course, are making a big, big deal over this, as they should. If I was a Collins supporter right now, I mean, I would be telling everybody what she did. But we really don't have the facts yet uh, to make that, uh, that uh, assertion. However, let me go on record now. If Kelly Leffler uh, did this and uh, she had influence over the outside advisors or can't show it's a blind trust, she probably needs to go on and resign and let the governor put someone else in. Because uh, she's going to be seriously damaged goods in November. Uh, the Collins team rightfully will be tearing her up. Uh, if it's a blind trust, uh, then I would defend her on it being a blind trust. If she can show she had no influence on outside advisors, uh, I'm, I'm glad to defend her. Because they're not the only ones. Now, theirs are the most striking because theirs is the most money. But the reality is that given her net worth, uh, the amount of money she sold actually isn't. Uh, it's a huge amount for you and me, but not for her, given her net worth. It still looks really bad, and everybody needs to acknowledge it's really bad uh, in, in terms of appearance, unless she can show it was a blind trust. 
Then there's David Perdue. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson, who is the Democratic candidate running for the Senate, give you an idea of just how bad her campaign is. She's attacking David Perdue for his stock trades. Uh, David Perdue was not in the briefing on how bad the, the virus was going to be, but he also sold stock afterwards. Uh, y'all, he bought Disney and Delta. He sold some stocks, sold some, some I think, grocery stores and a few other things. And he he bought Disney and Delta. If if David Perdue was trying to profit off of this, he would not be selling grocery store stocks and buying Disney and Delta stocks. He'd be doing the opposite. Um, the fact that the Democrats can't distinguish between the two actually helps Leffler. Um, the fact that they can't distinguish this it really really helps Leffler uh, when it comes to this. Now there are some other senators as well, Jim Inhofe. Uh, Ron Johnson, Diane Feinstein. But when you actually look at the stocks, because you can see the stocks that are being bought and sold. And the only two that are really raising major red flags are, are Leffler and Burr. And it has to do with the amounts more than anything. And the fact that Leffler bought Citrix uh, stock. Citrix, for those of you who don't know, Citrix is a company that allows you to uh, work from home via secure, what's called a private network. Uh, a lot of people, I used to work for a company where you would have a little thing you'd carry with you and it would randomly generate a number every 30 seconds and when you would try to log into the website uh, you, whatever number was on there you had to put that number in uh, in a certain within 30 seconds or you had to restart all over again uh, to be able to get in and have a secure connection so um, that's troubling uh, she says it's a blind blind trust or she hasn't said yet it's a blind trust she said it was outside advisors uh, we'll see um, Philip is texting me right now just to point out that uh, Delta stock is down 60% I may actually buy some Delta stock now, as a matter of fact, uh, Delta stock is down 60% uh, and Purdue bought it when it was 60% higher than it is today. So uh, there's no there there with Purdue clearly, and there may not be with Leffler. There appears to be with Richard Burr. And of course, this puts the Senate in play. This, this gives the Democrats a scandal, much like in 1994, the Republicans had the check kiting scandal. The Democrats have this scandal with the uh, Intelligence Committee chairman. Now, Burr is not on the ballot in North Carolina. He could weather this storm and maybe people will forget. I'm sure some of his Republican colleagues are telling him just uh, come out with a plausible explanation and hunker down. No one's paying attention as this virus continues to spread. And and there's benefit for him there. And same with Leffler, except the attacks will come for her because she's on the, on the uh, ballot this year. Now, we need to discuss uh, the Senate Republican plan. The Senate Republicans, Leffler, and again, at the top of the next hour, her first uh, statewide radio interview. I've got it. We did it yesterday. She actually called in uh, to my evening show yesterday. We conducted the interview. I want to replay it at 10 o'clock. I didn't get to ask her about the scandal because the news had not broken yet. Uh, but if, if I get the opportunity, I'm going to try to get some clarity from her uh, and see if I can get her on the show. This, this Her team needs to understand that they've got to get ahead of this now. Uh, they need to get every document out there they possibly can and all the information out there now. They cannot. If, if she wants to win in November, what I would be telling her if I was her campaign strategist is she needs to start doing major interviews with Georgia media, not national media, Georgia media. She needs to cover the market thoroughly and explain thoroughly 
that uh, she did nothing wrong. She had no knowledge of it and, and show the documentation to show that she's got uh, a, a firewall between her and her. It's, it's, it's no good to say she's got other people managing her money. If there's not a firewall for communication between her and them, no one's going to believe it. So she's going to be able to show these things. She cannot rely on this virus to cover this up because the Democrats aren't. I assure you, Doug Collins is. And if she wants to win this thing, she's going to have to get out there more aggressively than she has and start doing a lot of interviews about this stuff. Now, what I want to do is I want to, having gone through that, I'll bring you the interview with Leffler in the next hour. I want to go on and take a break because I want to get into the Senate Republican plan and it is hot garbage. And I want to explain to you why and have time when I'm not up against a break. I also want to take your phone calls. I know I started rushed out of the gate. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Happy to take your calls. We're a little looser on topics right now as everybody stir crazy at home and just wanting outlets to talk. Remember, uh, your local station that you're listening to right now, if you've got a smart phone, smart speaker, what have you, uh, you're not in your car, you're headed home, you want to stay up on the news, you can say to, hey, Dingus or Alexa or whatever, listen to whatever the radio station is that I'm on that you're listening to right now uh, around the city. I don't want to give out call letters because... I'm going to offend one station because I forget or the other. So just whatever station you're listening to, um, get the call letters and say, hey, dingus, uh, here. Now, um, also at the bottom of the hour, uh, insurance commissioner John King, we are waiting to lock him in. He should be joining me at the bottom of the hour. So I'm going to go on, hop out, come back and explain just how terrible the Senate insurance pl- or the Senate uh, bailout plan is. It is Eric Erickson here. John King joining me at the bottom of the hour. The insurance commissioner who is has really been tasked with inventory by the governor to go around the state and make sure we got all the ventilators, respirators, everything we need, uh, all the medical supplies, where they are, how much we have, all that. Uh, he is really leading this up for the governor. He's got a background in doing stuff like this like for example uh in the um in at the border uh when he worked for the federal government uh was doing stuff like that and then and then running the the police department up in where was it um um Doraville uh the police department there so interesting to to hear from him he does have a background of this let me explain to you and by the way if you want to see all of this data uh and and get all the information I'm sending out to people by email where I'm sorting through all the BS and and garbage out there to try to get you just what's going on text the word data to 33777 and then click the link that comes back subscribe there and you'll be able to get all the information um The Senate plan, the bailout plan, is bad, and the reason it's bad is because it's means-tested, and it is bad because it's means-tested because it's means-tested in a way that does not take into account cost of living. I I know for those of us who who live in Georgia, even if you live in the Atlanta area, it's hard to fathom that a doctor who makes $400,000 a year in Georgia can be very wealthy. But a doctor who makes four hundred thousand a year in San Francisco is barely making ends meet. I I, I know that seems absurd. Uh, it, it sounds absurd for me to say it. 
but when you consider the cost of living in San Francisco and the cost of mortgage in San Francisco, uh, let me put this in perspective for you. Uh, just when I was, uh, I guess I was, was 30 years old and I got a job in Washington, D.C., uh, 31 years old. And my wife and I had had a house at the time. It was about 24, 2,500 square feet, had a half acre of land. It was in uh, Macon, those of you who live in Bibb County. It was near Rosa Taylor Elementary School. And uh, it was a nice little house, perfect starter home, three bedroom, two bathroom, uh, no garage. The garage had been converted into a bigger living room. It was nice. Uh, old house built in the 40s. Uh, but it was it was a nice house, and it cost us, I think, $110,000, $115,000. had a friend of mine in Washington, D.C. I started taking a job commuting back and forth, and it was um, – he had a quarter-acre lot, uh, so half the size of my lot, and his house was the same square footage as my house, very similar design. My house, I bought it for – I think our mortgage wound up actually being $110,000, and he – his house was worth, I think, five fifty. He made two or three times as much money as I did, and under the Senate Republican plan, uh, I would get about five bucks back, and he would get nothing back. And yet, I actually had more disposable income than him. Uh, his car insurance was higher for where he lived. Uh, he, his car was was slightly nicer than mine, so his car payment was higher. His, um, his, but his mortgage was absolutely outrageous and his property taxes were outrageous and the cost of groceries and everything else was outrageous up there. The cost of gas was outrageous. I had more disposable income. I was making six, uh, five figures. He was making mid six figures and I had more money to spend on a monthly basis on my budget than he had. And he was not living extravagantly. He had roommates and everything else. But the cost of living was so out of whack. The Senate Republican plan would cap the people who get payments at $99,000 with no regard to cost of living. And actually, it, it, they wouldn't even the, – the poorest of the poor would not get money. Uh, I think it starts like $35,000 and goes up, and every couple thousand dollars, they take all $500. you will get a $500 bonus uh, for each kid you have. And uh, when you get to 99000 it all goes away. That's a terrible idea to means test right now. It essentially – it helps people who live in red states with lower cost of living and people who live in, in blue states or purple states where cost of living sometimes are higher or urban areas and even in red states like Atlanta or Dallas. It, it puts those people at a disadvantage. And if we're all to be Americans right now, uh, everybody should be taken care of. And frankly, I think just handing people $2,000 is a bad idea because, again, $2,000 in Clarksville, Georgia goes a lot further than 2000 in Atlanta, which goes – further than $2,000 in San Francisco. Uh, the, I think the better way to do it would be to find a way to put on a bill freeze. Anybody who owes you money gets to delay owing you money with, with no fees and no interest. And any money that you owe to people uh, gets frozen, mortgages, um, utility bills, all that. Uh, so you can use your disposable income to take care of your groceries and let the government take care of the utilities and, and the, the, the finance companies and the landlords. Let the government do that. Let you free up your disposable income that you have right now so you're not having to pay your mortgage, your student loan, your car note, or your power bill. And the government is therefore not doing cash transfers to anyone, and that would automatically take into account the cost of living differences between big cities and rural towns. They're not thinking about that. Uh, and here's the other problem is that it's also not looking at uh, current taxes to do the Senate plan. It's looking at 2018 taxes. I know just off the top of my head at least 10 people whose circumstances have changed dramatically from the time they filed their 2018 taxes to now, uh, and they would be shut out of this, 
And it's ridiculous for the Republicans to do that. It's also kind of ridiculous, frankly, uh, if you got kids who are still living at home, but they're paying taxes uh, to be giving them the same amount of money that you're giving other people. It's just it, it, it's a bad way to go about doing it, particularly in a time of crisis like this. And so I'm, I'm very adamant that we need to get the Senate Republicans to change their mind on this now. When we come back, uh, the insurance commissioner for the state of Georgia, John King, is going to join me. The governor and the public health officials of the state have been singing his praises. Uh, he has been going around Georgia, making sure that uh, supplies are ready for the medical community as the number of, of patients continues to go up, the number of tests continues to go up. Uh, been doing really good work, singled out by a lot of people uh, for his leadership in this. So Insurance Commissioner John King joining me for his first statewide interview when we come back. It is Eric Erickson and the phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425, covering the entire state of Georgia here. I've got joining me by phone the state insurance commissioner, John King. Welcome to the program, sir. How are you? Thank you, sir. I appreciate you having us. I have uh, just heard all sorts of commendable things about you in the last week from public health officials for the work you're doing to, to help uh, make sure we've got all the supplies we need around the state. And, and if you wouldn't mind, could you just kind of give us an overview of, of what all you are doing as this virus spreads? We're looking at, uh, you know, clearly we're uh, supporting uh, the great efforts, not only uh, that our governors doing, but also the, the work that GMA's doing. And, and they're focused on the immediate response. And we're looking at the as I, I would like to think of it as the strategic operational uh, space of looking at policies, looking at regulations, and where we can remove obstacles that get in the way of the response. Uh, listening a great deal of, uh, of time, listening to folks that, that really understand this space very well, like the food industry, the Georgia retailers, convenience store association, uh, hospital association. Uh, so we're we're spending a lot of time listening and looking at what are the things that are in the way of the response, uh, regulatory-wise, and, and looking and, and issuing recommendations to the governor's team, and how we remove those, and at what time do we remove those those uh, uh, obstacles? So, in your experience so far, what have been some of the biggest obstacles uh, that you found that need to be rearranged? Well, the key is uh, initially just getting, you know, as as you noted, uh, they they run on on supplies, especially when the panic initially, you know, came in. How do we open up the floodgates of, uh, of regulatory floodgates to to make sure that we increase increase our supply chain logistics to our supermarkets? Uh, the governor's initial uh, order, uh, you know, opened up hours of operation, weights. And those things opened up. Now we're working with local gov uh, governments to make sure that their local ordinances are not in the way as well. You know, wh at what times can we supply, uh, you know, uh, can trucks come in and resupply supermarkets and warehouses and, and things like that? So we're going through a very methodical, very, very log you know, logical approach on how we remove it and how do we engage other members of, of our community. The state government right now, I, I, particularly, it, it seems to be coming mostly from concerned reporters and, and people outside the state beginning a little bit to be concerned that the state needs to be on a, more of a lockdown than it is. Uh, uh, you're out there checking on logistics and, and supply chains and stuff. Uh, what's your view on this right now as to where we're at? I think, uh, you know, we 
there's there's a tendency, especially in the large cities, that the solution is, uh, you know, in other states have approached this in a different way. I think the governor has been very, he's been listening very carefully to what local leaders need, and he's empowering, using the state government to empower those local leaders. Nobody knows these communities better than, than mayors and county commissioners and, and, uh, and, and our legislators. So he's providing that. And the, it is very difficult to have a one solution and you know several states uh you know as you can imagine that they they the governors have imposed a a mandate from from the state uh, house to to shut down all of it our governors taking a different approach that you know things in Atlanta are different than Vidalia or Albany or Valdosta and, and everybody you know needs the support of the governors and using the governor's authority but there's not one cookie cutter solution for for the whole state now, you you came into the insurance commissioner office uh, through the governor appointing you, uh, given the situation with Jim Beck. And uh, as I, I mentioned to Kelly Leffler yesterday, her going to the Senate, uh, nobody saw uh, a global pandemic coming when you guys took the job. Um, no. <laughs> what, 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 what are you, you finding uh, as far as learning on the job and, and getting your feet wet out there, what the job entails now? It's, 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 you know, it's obviously a great opportunity. Obviously, I had a little bit of time before the legislature uh, session started to learn and, and to listen carefully. Uh, every every complex problem that I've ever been involved, not only militarily but in law enforcement, is, is you gather the facts, you make uh, you make you know initial decisions, and then you start developing off of, off of that base of knowledge. But I, I'm I have the capacity that you know I've had the capacity to ask questions that perhaps other commissioners have never asked. Why? Because I did not come from the industry, so I ask questions of why do we do that. And if I get the answer, well, it's because we've always done it that way. <laughs> I, I've always said that is not satisfactory. Uh, you know, we need to come up with, you know, we're in 2020. We ought to be doing, you know, business in a regulatory uh, space that we have to, to make sure that we, that we, you know, protect our citizens and we protect our, cust- uh, our consumers, but also not wreck the industry in the process. Now, speaking of the industry beyond the supply chain, as the insurance commissioner, of course, uh, the insurance companies are actively involved in this, and, and you've issued some directives out there regarding health care and insurance. Uh, what should consumers and, and Georgia voters be paying attention to as far as the directives? Well, the first fact, we've issued some very clear guidance to the insurance companies, and, and, and the insurance industry has been very, very supportive. I mean, they, they, they started calling us, hey, what can we do to support this uh, this ensuing uh, crisis. So we haven't had any pushback, but we've asked them not to cancel any insurance policies in the next 60 days for property and casualty. Um, we're going to be directing also health insurance uh, carriers to not be canceling uh, for you know any policies for non-payment for for the next you know 60 days and and potentially be extended beyond that if this crisis uh, lasts longer. So. No, no pushback at all from from any of the industry, uh, you know, companies. They all understand their corporate uh, responsibility, and and they've actually provided some good uh, feedback on how can we move quicker, how can we, you know, remove any obstacles so they can, so they can provide better services. A good example is extending uh, and publicizing their telemedicine, uh, you know, procedures. A good portion of our of our citizens in in, uh, in Georgia. You know, this telemedicine is a great opportunity to to triage uh, patients who are potentially, you know, have some of the symptoms, but not necessarily. And we're trying to keep people from just rushing to emergency rooms and and occupying the the valuable bed space that that our emergency rooms need to, to maintain. 
Well, listen, I, I appreciate you doing all of that. And if you if you can, and you mentioned you may be extending some of these after 60 days, I mean, what are you looking for as this continues to take shape in the state? We obviously we're we're paying very close attention to the Department of Public Health and GEMA and how you know we know that this curve exists. We've seen it in in you know in multiple countries in not only China, but Italy, uh, South Korea provide us probably a really good model, and we've seen at the rate of increase. And so we're going to basically uh, you know our governor is is taking some really strong action. How do we flatten this curve? How do we attack this from every regulatory from every opportunity to 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 flatten this curve, to reduce not only the impact, but also to to uh, get our economy started again. As you can imagine, that this you know it's taken quite a while. Now, moving forward, um, you're also now. I, I, I guess um, you've got to be. I, I, well, you tell me. Do you, do you have to be affirmed by the voters if if we've we've got the situation? Are you going to be on the ballot in November as the insurance commissioner? No, I am. I, I will be in twenty twenty two. Oh, twenty twenty two. Okay. All right. So so you've got some time, but but ultimately, I, I, I'm assuming you, you're you would be planning. I mean, I, I realize we're still a couple years away from this, um, but but you are are you in the process now? Now of, of in addition to being the insurance commissioner, also uh, diving now into having to be a politician? Absolutely. Uh, that's part of my <laughs> commitment to the governor. I, he wanted somebody that will be here for the long run and, and uh, get this agency back on its tracks. Well, listen, uh, best of luck to you. And, uh, you know, again, as I, I mentioned earlier, and, and as I mentioned to Senator Leffler yesterday, you, you guys, nobody could have seen this coming, and you're all rising to the uh, rising to the challenge. And I, I really have heard from numerous public health officials around the state uh, that they've been impressed with your willingness to get in there and get your hands dirty dealing with the supply chain issues that they're also worried about. Oh, it's absolutely. It, it, this requires all hands on deck approach. I mean, there, there's you know, and we and the, the only way we're going to be successful is maintaining clear, uh, transparent communications with with our with our ultimate customer, the, the citizens of the state of Georgia, and uh, and we're all in this together. Well, it, I, I sure appreciate y'all reaching out to us and, and getting the word out. And if we can do anything and get the word out further for you, please let us know. Uh, Insurance Commissioner John King, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, again, I, I, this is broken record time here. They, he fell into this because of the Jim Beck scandal. Uh, Jim Beck, the elected insurance commissioner, is now under federal indictment uh, for steering money towards himself through some shell corporations. And uh, the the U.S. attorney in in the Northern District of Georgia is prosecuting him, so he had to step aside. Uh, the governor picked John King, who had been in the military, helping with the border operations, and then became the police chief in Doraville. And um, now he's the insurance commissioner, and he fell into this. And suddenly we have global pandemic. Uh, but he, when he was in the military, dealt with supply chain issues. So it's just uh, fortuitous, providential, if you will, that suddenly this this is. Uh, someone out there who is willing to come in as insurance commissioner, deal with supply chain issues, and engage also in the job of insurance commissioner when he did not, as he admitted, he didn't have the background of insurance commissioner, but that does give him needed perspective, I suspect. Now, his directives, again, are you're not going to lose insurance in the next 60 days if you can't meet your uh, auto house or, or life. It looks like he says he's going to, or not life, uh, health. It looks like they're going to uh, do some, 
operations with insurance companies to defer those payments and defer your mortgage or not your mortgage, your insurance, so it can't be canceled, which is good. Um, and that the insurance companies are also stepping up to cooperate is good. The other issue is the supply chain. And I do want to tell you this. Uh, so Politico has a story out. That's a DC uh, online publication. I guess now they print as well, but they've got a story out today that the supply chain for groceries in this country is actually not impacted that the country has is in terms of frozen vegetables and milk and egg supply and meat supply enough to get us through just in what's in refrigeration and and freezer storage around the country right now they've got enough for the next 11 months so even at current spending rates, in addition to the stuff that's coming online in general anyway, uh, we do not have a supply chain problem at the grocery stores. I know people are still out there hoarding stuff. And as stuff comes in, people are saying, oh, I didn't get flour last week. I better buy up every bag of flour uh, because I may never find it again. That's We've actually got enough grain storage in this country right now as well. You're not going to run out of flour. You're not going to run out of milk. You're not going to run out of meat. Uh, there's no reason to go hoard at all. And frankly, you know, I, I've been stewing over this call yesterday we had a guy call in yesterday from south bibb county uh who saw a couple come out of a a kroger with four grocery carts full of soft drinks and beer and and other stuff uh clearly either hoarding or trying to resell it or who who knows what uh maybe they were distributing to other people but but given an entire grocery cart full of beer i have a hard time believing that as well um now those people won't have to return to the grocery store you would hope but Everybody should be responsible in their grocery store habits. What I've been advising people along the way is when you go to the grocery store, buy a little extra. Uh, buy some of the frozen frozen meat instead of the refrigerated meat. Uh, buy, buy an extra roll of paper towels if you need it. Uh, buy an extra gallon of milk if you need it. Buy an extra box of pasta or an extra bag of rice. Uh, but there's no reason to go in and buy up every box. There's no reason to go up and buy every roll of toilet paper. There's no reason to buy every potato in the store. And people are doing that. Uh, and they're doing it because there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknowns. Um, and, and particularly, you know, like there are parts of the state where the virus has not yet appeared and is starting to appear, like middle Georgia, where people are now starting to freak out. Oh, my goodness, it's in our area. I thought maybe we would be spared, but you haven't been. You're going to have to do you're going to have to buckle down in ways you didn't think you wanted to buckle down. And you're going to have to come up with alternatives in some cases, but you're not going to have to hoard. Our gas and petroleum supplies in the country are at 100%. Our grocery inventory is at 100%. Our grocery supply chains are at 100%. And the, even, even if the supply chains begin to break down in terms of manpower to reproduce, based on what is in frozen storage around the country right now, your milk, uh, your eggs, and your meats and your vegetables are still going to be fine. Your paper products are still going to be fine for at least the next 11 months based on inventory supplies. In fact, uh, if you go online today, uh, truck companies around the nation are putting up pictures from their truck drivers showing their full trucks, and not just showing their full trucks, showing the overloads on docks at the supply chain uh, producers to show people you don't need to go out and buy all of this stuff because there's plenty available and more is coming. They're daily cycling through bread and everything else is fine uh so don't panic don't hoard uh one of the things that's happening in a lot of grocery stores is people are going in and they're wiping out certain products and so people who are on wick can't actually buy the stuff that they're allowed to buy to be able to feed their kids and so the people who are hoarding are actually doing disservice to their neighbors who can only buy certain products given their income stream uh and government assistance so don't go out there hoarding people
I went, I mentioned this yesterday. I've been trying to find peanut butter for a week and people are just wiping it off the shelves. And I went yesterday, they had fully loaded store shelves of Jif peanut butter finally at the Publix near me. And I went in and I got two jars of Jif, left all the other jars. Uh, and it's, apparently people have come in and wiped them out again, uh, which is unfortunate. But the other thing that is happening is a lot of grocery stores, I'm being told, are keeping stuff in the back now, extra stuff in the back to be able to resupply. So they want people to keep seeing full shelves so the panic subsides and people stop going in and wiping them out of everything. There's just no need to do that. We've got available supplies around the country right now. You know, I, I got to tell you, it is funny to me how people have strongly held opinions on peanut butter. Uh, choosy moms choose Jif, as you know. Uh, but other people, a buddy of mine texted me during commercials saying uh, he only eats the Kroger brand peanut butter. It's what he grew up with. Someone else told me that they grew up with Skippy peanut butter and they're Yankees. So that explains it. Uh, in our house, uh, it has always been Jif. Um, even grow, if I remember, recall, we didn't have a ton of peanut butter overseas. But if I recall, we even had Jif in Dubai growing up. But maybe we would ship it over there. I can't remember. Um, but it's always been Jif. I'll never forget. Uh, so when I was a kid, I grew up in Dubai. And we had a housekeeper named Anna. She was from uh, India, southern India. Her father actually owned a tea plantation. They were a Catholic family in southern India. And uh, she um, she became a housekeeper. Her husband drove an ice cream truck, uh, not not like an ice cream truck like through the neighborhood, but actually uh, to grocery stores, a refrigerated truck for an ice cream company. And they were working for us. We had a little bitty cottage. I mean, it literally was, it was a combined bathroom kitchen. Yes, the bathroom and the kitchen were one room. And then there was another big room for living space and, and uh, bedroom. And they would live in there. Uh, and they were raising money to pay for the visas to patriot their children to Dubai. Their children were living in India with the grandparents. And wonderful, wonderful people. But the idea of peanut butter sandwich was a completely foreign concept. Now, you should know I'm a picky eater and I do not eat jelly. That will not surprise those of you who know me. Jelly is based on what? Fruit. What do I not eat? Fruit. Uh, no way. So uh, I eat, I love peanut butter, but not peanut butter and jelly. And my parents one time had to go to Abu Dhabi uh, for a softball tournament with my sister. And so I was home alone and Anna was taking care of me. And my parents just told her to make me a peanut butter sandwich for lunch, for school. So off I go to school and I go to lunch and I bite into my peanut butter sandwich. And what should it be? Peanut butter with slabs of butter. Peanut butter with slabs of butter. Yep, because it was, in her mind, it was um, essentially uh, liquidated peanuts and then butter. That would be peanut butter. Uh, she completely unfamiliar with the idea of peanut butter. That, and I just, to this day, it cracks me up every time I think about biting into that sandwich. It, it kind of makes me want to gag. Oh, it did not taste good. Having butter and peanut butter together was not a good combination. Um, and some of you are thinking having peanut butter without without jelly is disgusting. Uh, but I'm sorry, I, I, I don't like fruit. Um, so I, I'll eat an apple. I do like apples, but only apples. And they've got to be like regular apples, not apples cooked in other stuff. Because I like apples as a st standalone fruit. Apple pie? Nope, not eating it. 
I know, I know. Listen, when I was a kid, I got sick off a lot of fruit and a lot of fruit-flavored medicines, and I've never eaten fruit since other than bananas and apples. And then I had to stop eating bananas because my toothless uh, 80-year-old grandfather would smack on them, and it just creeped my sisters and me out. So that leaves an apple as the only fruit I will touch, but it's just got to be a regular apple. And I got to touch it. I got to cut it up myself. I'm not going to eat other people's cut up apples because they might have touched other fruit and strawberries in particular. Don't get me started. I realize uh, none of you wanted to hear any of that. All, all uh, is to say uh, Jif is the superior peanut butter and the rest of you are wrong. And I thought it was very funny going to Publix the other day. All of the Jif was gone and all the other stuff was there. And within three days, the Skippy was gone, but all the other peanut butter is still there. Now, some people have pointed out that those are the wick items and the others are not all the frou-frou organic stuff is still there. The almond butters, the, the organic peanut butters, but the Reese's peanut butter is there too. And so is the Peter Pan peanut butter. People eat Jif and they eat Skippy. They don't eat the rest of it. You know, honest to goodness, uh, if you go through a grocery store right now, it really is remarkable to see the stuff that's on the shelves. And if I were if I were a manufacturer of goods, I would be have paying people right now to go through grocery stores and document what products are on the grocery store shelves. And if my product is still on the grocery store shelf at a time of crisis and emergency when people are hoarding, that should tell me I've got to either stop making this or I got to rebrand this so that people find it necessary. Because when you're walking through the grocery store and you see on the grocery store shelves uh, a, a particular type of bean or a particular a particular canned good or a particular brand of peanut butter or the f- cauliflower pre- pizza crust, the vegan nonsense at the grocery store, no one actually buys the vegan nonsense at the grocery store. And it's amazing to me how people who are gluten-free are suddenly all about buying gluten-filled bread right now. That's probably the funniest thing is you go through the f- grocery store and, oh, I'm allergic to gluten. Or, and I realize there are really people who are people really have um, uh, gluten allergies. I, I get that. I realize celiac disease is a real thing, but the number of people who say they can't eat gluten and now going through the grocery store and seeing all the gluten-free stuff still on the shelves and all the regular bread has disappeared. Uh, I assure you gluten-free people are hoarding too, and they ain't hoarding the gluten-free bread. And that should be a big tip off to us, uh, that things are discombobulated right now. When we come back, I do have an interview, the first interview with Kelly Leffler. I've got it, and I want to play it for you. I didn't get to ask her about the scandal because we had to pre-record the interview before the news broke yesterday. But coming up, Kelly Leffler. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The full number if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let me bring you up to speed on a couple of things. I I, I promised uh, one of our affiliates I would start doing this. Uh, The numbers update at noon every day, so we don't have today's numbers yet. But to give you a sense of how this is moving through the state, uh, let me give you the audit trail of of the disease right now, of the virus spreading in Georgia. Uh, According to the Department of Public Health, 287 cases, 10 cases are, um, are deaths. And we should probably be over 300 today by noon, if not definitely tomorrow. Uh, 46% female, 53% male, 1% we're not sure. Uh, The number of tests have ramped up pretty significantly to close to 2,000 tests. Uh, As that number goes up, Brian Kemp is reassuring everyone that we are going to see a big spike in tests, but that that's not anomalous. That's what they've known in large part from what I'm hearing from public health officials. They actually got the very bright idea of using the 
flu the flu test as a proxy uh, because if someone comes in with flu-like symptoms and they don't have the flu, the odds are they have this. So they've they're, they they've got some good uh, tracking numbers as to as to where this goes. They know there's going to be a big spike. Uh, but they, they've already counted on that spike, and that's why the governor is not cracking the whip further than he is right now. Now, the audit per county, here we go again. This will be updated at noon today right after we get off the air. 66 in Fulton, 37 Cobb, 26 Bartow, 22 DeKalb, 20 Darty, 16 in Cherokee, 12 in Gwinnett, 9 in Fayette, 8 in Clark, 6 in Lowndes, 6 in Floyd, 6 in Clayton, 5 in Hall, 4 in Gordon, 3 in each of these, Lee, Coweta, Paulding, Newton, Forsyth, and Henry County, 2 in Early, Glen, Lawrence, and Richmond, and Troop County, and then 1 in each of these, Rockdale, Houston, Charlton, Whitfield, Polk, Columbia, Barrow, Bibb, Peach, and Muskogee. Six people we don't know which counties they're they're from. Um, they're, uh, I, I'm not sure. I think I read, don't hold me to this one, please. I think I read that uh, these were people who... Um, they're in they're in intensive care and we're not sure where they are from uh, nursing homes or otherwise they were nursing homes so uh, there's your situation now I want to go to this interview with Kelly Leffler uh, the there is a scandal breaking involving her today uh, she apparently according to ProPublica a left-wing nonprofit news organization uh, she sold a bunch of stock after getting a closed door briefing in January on how bad the virus was going to be. She says that her accounts are actually managed independently of herself. She had no knowledge of the sale. If she can prove that, I think she's okay, but she really needs a blind trust. If it's not a blind trust, I don't know who's going to believe uh, that the wife of the the owner of the New York Stock Exchange was not able to get a message out to someone to, to do this. And even if she has a blind trust, there will be people who say that. Uh, but given the way blind trusts work, that's very, very difficult to do. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of her net worth was affected. Uh, she sold a couple million dollars worth of stock. She's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's, it's actually not a ton of money, relatively speaking, but you got to acknowledge it looks really bad. Uh, I did not get to ask her about that, though, because the, our interview happened before the, the news broke last night. Uh, we did talk about the bailout problems in Washington, D.C. So here now, my interview with Kelly Leffler, the first statewide interview of the senator. I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? I am great. Listen, um, boy, who saw coronavirus coming when the governor sent you to the Senate? <laughs> well, it's been a series of interesting times, but I'm I'm really um, working very hard to make sure we get through this in in good shape here. It's uh, it's been pretty intense, and I'm I'm working hard. <laughs> Well, let me ask you about the work you guys are doing. It seems like there are a lot of questions people have about uh, where the the stimulus package will come down and what it will mean to small businesses. And in particular, I keep hearing from small businesses that are concerned they're going to get loaded up with burdens like family leave, but then they're not going to have any revenue coming in to be able to do that. What's the state of play right now with all that? That's a really important question. So... Uh, in the bill that was passed last night, you know, there were some good elements, uh, testing free of cost to those, those who need it, um, a nutrition package for women, infants, and children, uh, making sure that these hard times um, don't get harder uh, for those in greatest need. But it also included that, that leave provision, uh, which I introduced uh, along with uh, Senator Johnson on the floor, an amendment that unfortunately did not 
passed, but it would have allowed businesses to not bear the burden of that leave. The good news is I have been working very hard on a fix in the third bill, uh, as you refer to the, the kind of stimulus bill, um, and um, this would allow small business to receive an upfront payment for that uh, you know, leave payment that they may have to make. So I'm working very hard to make sure that gets included in this because small business should not bear the cost of this. Oh, that is really good news. I, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, you know, I keep getting asked questions from people about, well, you know, Republicans are opposed to socialism and, and isn't the socialism. And I keep telling people that, no, this is the government telling businesses to shut down. Uh, essentially, it, it's taking private property and they should be entitled to compensation for that. And uh, thank you for doing that. Um, I appreciate it. And I, I mean, what is your sense of, of how this is going to navigate through the Senate. I know there's still some influx as to how much to pay to families and things. Yes, definitely. So just came out of a, a two-hour meeting with the Republican conference um, where we had extensive uh, detailed conversations about how to get this through quickly, but make sure it's effective. What we're seeing right now, we're certainly very worried about the health of the public, but also the economic health of families. And I really look at this bill as what I'd call like a safety net and that's because this is extraordinary times. Um, the government, as you mentioned, has, has called on us to not frequent restaurants and travel, and therefore business has been shut down. So this package deals with small business. It deals with stability for uh, targeted intervention in big industry that's been affected. In other words, major employers uh, who employment we very much care about right now, and then some stimulus to families. And, um, you know, while none of this is going to be perfect, I think this bill is going to be much better than and more effective than the House package that was passed last night in really fixing some of the challenges that people have been faced with. So um, I'm hoping we can negotiate that in the next couple of days. And frankly, if we don't, we're not leaving Washington until it gets done. Uh, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that, and you know, I just I have remarked now to several friends that uh, after the governor appointed you and this crisis came about, g just given your background uh, in finance and dealing with markets and and even uh, cryptocurrency and stuff, you're you're in, kind of in the perfect setup right now for this. Uh, and I'm just from your background, what would you tell Georgians right now who are freaked out about 401ks? For example, we just had a caller uh, right before you you got on who was asking, can can we dip into our 401ks if we need to without penalty? What should we do? People are freaked out. What would you tell people who are looking at their retirement situation right now? Well, I am glad you asked because we are looking at measures like that. We need to make sure that regulation doesn't stop access to, to liquidity, to the cash that um, Georgians need. And, and we are absolutely looking at all of those things as we address this next package. And, and I would just say, you're right, I, you know, three months ago I was a business leader, I was involved in financial services, um, I, you know, worked, was a member of the executive leadership of the New York Stock Exchange. I can tell you what we're seeing right now reflected in the stock market volatility really reflects the uncertainty that businesses and individuals and families are feeling. And the quicker we can get this legislation passed, the more we can stabilize and have that visibility into what you know, the, the new framework is, what's the new world order? So we owe that to the American people to get that out. In the meantime, I'm really glad that Secretary Mnuchin, who I've been speaking with on a regular, regular uh, basis, he's our Secretary of the Treasury, um, that he has helped 
uh, worked with the Fed to backstop the commercial paper market, which stabilizes the banks and the liquidity and make sure that, that with, along with liquidity, our companies and our investors are solvent. So we've, we're working really hard to stabilize this so that investors um, can kind of know the rules of the road very soon. In your estimation, outside of the obvious spread of the virus, what is the, the biggest struggle right now uh, economically, the, the thing that, that has you most concerned? I, to be honest, I'm concerned about employment. I, I really, I came here as a business outsider to make sure that every person could have that opportunity to succeed, to support their family, to live the American dream. I, I am losing sleep over this. We've, we've got to make sure people stay employed, that have access to their jobs, their incomes, that they can pay their rent, their mortgage, uh, their child's needs. Uh, education. So that's where I'm focused at is making sure that we don't do things to disrupt employment. And if we do, that there's a safety net, that it's, um, it's sufficient and that it's in place as long as needed. But as you point out later, that we don't need to structurally change the United States away from our great system of free markets and, and freedoms that we have here as well. So striking that balance is, is really important. Now, just on a practical matter, but before you get out of here, I know you've got to get to other things as well. You've you've kind of, I mean, dove in in a sink or swim environment right now in the Senate. What's been your your biggest eye opening moment since you've been up there? Boy, um, you know, it seemed pretty dramatic to come here and, and deal with the takeout of Soleimani, which, um, you know, I commended the president for doing and, um, and to be able to acquit the president in impeachment. But um, it, all of that is, it seems, uh, it, it kind of pales compared to the, the crisis we're facing here. And I think my goal is really uh, to have an impact on mitigating the impacts of this moment and making sure that we come out of this and we're able to get back to our everyday lives and and learn even more about where our shortcomings were and how we address this. Um, I've been uh, talking with hospitals, um, learning about the challenges there and making sure that this is directly reflected in the legislation. So I'm just thrilled that I can have an impact here and hopefully um, help Georgians across the state. Senator, listen, I, I, I know you've got to run, and I thank you so much for stopping by. I really do appreciate it, and I know this wasn't what anyone expected we would be dealing with in 2020, and, and appreciate you up there uh, doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, and God bless you all. Thanks very much. Senator Kelly Leffler, United States Senator Kelly Leffler. The indefatigable Tim Bryant at our affiliate WGAU in Athens, our flagship station, actually sat down earlier today and interviewed David Perdue, United States Senator, uh, and raised the issue because, you know, Perdue is implicated in this this trading scandal, although it's, it's not for him when you actually look at it. He bought Delta and Disney stock. Um I'm sorry, but if you have insider knowledge, uh, you're not going to buy Delta and Disney stock and, by the way, sell grocery store stock, uh, which is what he did. He actually wasn't didn't participate in any of this. Uh, but I want to play for you part of this. Uh, Tim sent along his interview. When, uh, he asked uh, David Perdue about this. Here's their conversation. These reports that are out there, I began with uh, reports about your Senate colleague, Kelly Leffler. Some of her stock dealings uh, has now expanded to include some others, Feinstein in California and you. And then. And I will sum up the 
the implication uh, here, and you can address it uh, to the extent that you care to. Uh, what we are being led to understand is that you folks, as U.S. senators, had some briefings as this coronavirus situation was beginning to escalate. You got some briefings. You processed what you heard. You went out and dumped a bunch of stock, made a bunch of money on what would amount to insider trading. Uh, that's the implication. Now, you tell me your side of the story. Well, in my case, I can't speak to anybody else's case, but that's absolutely not the case. Uh, I didn't even go to the hearing or the briefing that they're talking about. But what uh, the transactions that uh, I think they're referring to, I haven't even looked this morning yet, um, are routine and consistent. I, I don't do this myself. I have outside professionals that manage my uh, investments, and this is just consistent with everything we've been doing for five years here. We comply with the rules. Uh, we have federal laws about insider trading. Uh, there's none of that here in my case, and certainly I comply with the rules with regard to whatever information we have here on uh, coronavirus. But these outside people have been doing this for me for five years. We file this report, Tim, every month. Uh, every transaction they do is uh, public information. So this is the, there's nothing new here. If you look at the trend over five years, you'll see that whatever has been done, I don't even know. I haven't looked. Whatever's done this year. Uh, will be very consistent with what's been done in the past. Well, as a matter of fact, and I'm reading this in the AJC just now, speaks to you specifically, Purdue, in nearly 100 transactions bought and sold in equal amounts. Well, you're, you're buying as much as you were selling, or so the AJC reports this morning. Well, Tim, that's my point. I mean, that's what these professionals do. Yeah, I don't have time to sit around and make decisions on 100 transactions uh, in the last couple months. So this is why, if you go back and look, that's consistent with what we've been doing pretty much every month since I've been here. Uh, they actively trade. I don't deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis, and that's why I have these outside professionals doing it. Uh, my focus right now is on this coronavirus uh, crisis we've got in Georgia and trying to make sure that these companies survive the next few months to keep these jobs that we've created over the last three years intact. That's Tim Bryant uh, from our flagship station, WGAU in Athens, talking to Senator David Perdue earlier about uh, the uh, story regarding purported insider trading. Uh, again, David Perdue has let an outside team manage his, and Kelly Leffler says an outside team managed hers. Now, the question really is going to have to be, to what extent was Leffler able to influence the outsiders? Because it's a couple million dollars. And in the grand scheme of things, given her net worth, that's not a lot of money, but to your average American, it is. And uh, even the most ardent Leffler supporters need to acknowledge this looks really bad for her. Uh, it, it does not look good. Uh, let me see real quick. Uh, I think I am told that she has released on social media a statement. Uh, let's see. This is her tweet from last night. I want to set the record straight. This is a ridiculous and baseless attack. I don't make investment decisions for my portfolio. Investment decisions are made by multiple third-party advisors without my or my husband's knowledge or involvement. As confirmed in the periodic trans transaction record to Senate Ethics, I was informed of these purchases and sales on February 16th, 2020, three weeks after they were made. That is Kelly Leffler, what she said on social media. Uh, if I was her team, what I would do is be more aggressive and uh, come out very specifically 
with an affidavit from her investment advisor saying they did not talk to her, put it under oath as an affidavit, say they they do not have contact with her. Uh, She abdicated her role in management uh, to an outside team and in in no way, shape or form communicated, nor did her husband communicate uh, directly or indirectly to convey that certain stocks needed to be bought or sold. If she can do that, I think she weathers the storm, but her team has got to go into damage control mode right now. Here's the danger of something like this politically. And, you know, just just for background here, uh, I'm not just speaking on a turn. I'm not pulling stuff out, out of my backside on this. I was a political consultant for a number of years. I've run congressional races. I've run state and local races. Uh, I, I do know how this thing is done. And I've also helped people with crisis management before. You You do not say, hmm, this is all going to be overshadowed by the coronavirus, so there's no reason to respond. No, you respond aggressively right now. If I were her, I would get this affidavit. Uh, it, it would be from the financial advisors. If it's not a blind trust, if it is a blind trust, so much the better. Uh, but if not, you you put them under oath with an affidavit and you say, we absolutely uh, had no knowledge of this. Uh, they did not talk to us. Uh, we were not informed of this. Uh, nothing. Uh, knew nothing. And in that way, uh, you, what you would do is inoculate yourself. And then you'd go do, you'd do media interviews. Go do an interview with the AJC. Go do an interview with uh, 13WMAZ in, in Macon. Go, go to Savannah. Go to uh, go to Valdosta. Do a you got a private jet? Uh, get on it and start going and doing these interviews or do them remotely uh, so that you don't you, you're not out there spreading a the virus. Uh, that would be a terrible way to do this. Oh, I'm going to go do all these interviews and you get sick along the way and get other people. You don't want to do that, but you get my point. Um, she's going to have to uh, go out and engage on this. She's going to need to get some people under oath with an affidavit uh, to deny for her that they that she had any influence over what they were doing. If she can't do that and do it aggressively and immediately, the story is going to fester. Now, the temptation at times like this, particularly for a lot of crisis management people, is you see the story that is the, the story as it's festering. And you see that everybody is talking about the virus and you decide I'm not going to do anything because the virus story is going to overshadow everything. So what's the point? Well, the point is you need to respond now as the story is brewing so that when the time comes, you've said this is old news. Uh, Here's my story. The AJC ran it, pointing you to old articles because this is going to be an attack and it is a relevant attack. If I was the Collins team, I would be waking up so happy today after the whole quarantine stuff and shaking hands with the president, then going into quarantine. uh, This is a brilliant news cycle for Doug Collins to capitalize on. And you know, he's going to capitalize on it because he's surrounded by smart people. He's got a good team. He himself is a good and smart politician and she's a newbie and he knows this. She better get on this quickly with her own campaign team. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. If you want to call in and be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Keep in mind, as you're working ho- working at home uh, and you're not in your cars, you can tell your smart device, if you've got a, if you've got a smart speaker or even your smartphone, tell them. Um, that, that, uh, you listen to, Hey, whatever your device is, Hey, dingus, 
listen to the radio station, whatever your radio station call letters are. Uh, say, hey, Dingus, listen to whatever radio station call letters. Uh, I, and, and OK, I'll give you the example of, of, hey, Dingus, listen to WMAC radio. Uh, that's my local station here in Macon where I'm on, but I'm on plenty of stations. I hesitate to do that because I don't want to hear from from. So you didn't you didn't call my station. And I'm just trying to give an example for all of you, uh, wherever you are uh, that I broadcast from. Uh, you can tell your your smart speaker to listen to that radio station when you're at home and still get the news. Uh, your podcast is going to be out of date uh, when you listen to your podcast, but your live radio, we're keeping you up to date here. So so let us keep you up to date uh, if we can. Now, um, it, there is some, some sad news here. The uh, NBC staffer who contracted coronavirus died. Uh, an NBC staffer... Um, the network chief has announced uh, the Larry Edgeworth died after a positive test. He was an audio technician for the network, suffered from other health issues, and succumbed to that illness. Um, there are others uh, who have been working from home. Uh, today, co-host Al Roker and Craig Melvin have been working from home after a staffer on the show uh, tested for coronavirus. That employee is recovering. Savannah Guthrie has been broadcasting live from her basement after contracting cold symptoms. Uh, CBS News, ABC, CNN, Condé Nast, Vox Media, The New York Times have all reported cases among staff. Um, my goodness gracious. Um, it, so there you have it. Um, and that's, that's, it's sad to see, um, sad to hear. And we're going to keep hearing more cases like this. Uh, if you want to get the, the Johns Hopkins, uh, information, the dashboard, what have you, uh, if you text data to three, three, seven, 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 uh, I will give it to you. Let me give you the updated audit of where we are nationally right now. Globally, there are 246,444 deaths. Uh, 41,035 cases in Italy, 3,405 deaths in Italy. In the United States right now, 14,250 cases as of right now and 205 deaths uh, with 10 deaths in Georgia. Um, the, the active confirmed case number in Georgia right now is 287 with 277 active. Uh, it's 287 confirmed and 277 active because 10 of them have died. Uh, we don't have any official recoveries in Georgia yet. We know people are recovering from it, uh, because they no longer have symptoms, but the testing is focused on the people who may have it as opposed to the people who, who are possibly cured. Um, Doug Collins is out right now. The Daily Caller reporting that Kelly Leffler, he, he's blasting her for profiting off of people's pain. Uh, my goodness gracious. So, uh, there you have it. Uh, can, can I mention real quick before I want to get into some stuff on Brian Kemp and, and we got other stuff out there as well. I want to talk about, but can I just mention real quick? I don't know if you've seen the video yet. In fact, hang on. I specifically, I if if my producer is listening to me right now, I specifically did not ask him to get this audio because I knew what it would do to him. It would break his soul if he had to get this audio because it is that annoying, and I didn't want him. He has to. He had to suffer through all of those debates, and so I didn't want him to have to do it. I didn't want to break his soul, but but I'm going to subject all of us real quick to this very briefly to make a point. 
Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people. Living for today. Yeah. Okay. Ah, y'all. That is probably one of the worst songs ever written by communist sympathizing atheist John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven or there's no hell. It's just mother nature and she's wiping us out. And all we have to live for is today because tomorrow we're going to die. My producer sent me a note and said he's no longer listening to the show that he produces because I played that. I knew it would have broken him. I, I knew it would have broken him. Y'all imagine really is, and I like the Beatles. Okay. I'm not a huge Beatles fan. I, I like their music, but uh, John Lennon's solo stuff is just garbage. And that is probably one of the worst songs. Um, but what is the other, what, what's the, what's the stupid Christmas song that John Lennon was involved with too? I, I don't know, but this song it's trash. There are so many great songs out there. And I love, uh, I mean, some of the actors who participated in this, this was all cell phone video of actors uh, who were doing this, uh, trying to, I don't even recognize half of them. Uh, Gal Gadot, who, who I just adore, Wonder Woman. She she's the one who apparently organized this thing. But what a what a what a garbage song uh, to 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 tell people. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. I, I, I imagine that this virus is going to wipe us out, and all we have to live for is today. What just what a what a garbage message. All right. To the phones we go, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Going first, Oscar, you are up. Welcome. Good morning. Republicans running for office. It's all perspective, is it not? Uh, yeah. Okay, so Dems, trying, Democrats trying to make the Republicans look bad, is they're just doing their job. We have to sit back and realize that, just like President Trump, every time he turns around, they're trying to throw throw dirt on him. They are. Now, but the question, Oscar, I mean, you know, so I, I, I had an exchange with a friend of mine this morning who, on the Leffler stuff, was saying, well, this comes from ProPublica. ProPublica is a left-wing organization, nonprofit. It's backed by, it really is backed by George Soros's organization. Uh, and so this is just a left-wing hit. Some people will buy that, particularly those inclined to support Leffler will already buy it and say, okay, this is a left-wing hit on her. But a lot of people are going to look at this and say, well, is it true? I mean, it can be an attack from a left-wing organization, but is it true? And if it's true, um, well, then there are issues there that that are going to have to be resolved. Um, and she's going to need to get some good explanations out there on that. Now, uh, to Mike, you're going to be next. Welcome. Thank you for taking my call, Eric. Sure. I had a couple questions. One is, um, you know, how are they going to determine... Who's going to receive these uh, stimulus checks from the government, uh, especially pertaining to the people that hasn't recently filed taxes? And my second question is, what are they going to start doing about the grocery stores, how all the food's getting sold out and the people cannot get no groceries? Okay, uh, let, let me take these one at a time and let me do with the grocery store first. Uh, that's up to the grocery stores. 
Uh, some of them are limiting items that people can buy right now, particularly cleaning supplies they're limiting. But by and large, they're not doing this. And I actually did talk to a, an official and ask them why they're not. And the explanation may not make sense to you, but it makes sense to me. There, the explanation I got from from one of the officials who's looking at this stuff, and it was on background, so I'm not. I don't want to tell you. I mean, I literally just picked up the phone and had a conversation with the person. Um, the reason they're not restricting people from doing this is because they believe that there is enough of a supply in the market that there are enough groceries and there is enough food and enough stuff on the way that when people continue to see the shelves being restocked, they're going to stop doing this. But if people see that they're limiting items, um, it's going to signal to people that we are in short supply. And so what's going to happen is the white one person's going to go to the grocery one spouse is going to go to the grocery store and buy what they can the ne- then the next one's going to go in and buy what they can or they're both going to be in there together and you're going to have a bunch of people in the grocery store at the same time and people are going to be buying stuff out and and packed into grocery stores to do it uh, because you're signaling to people there really is a shortage so if they just allow people the, the fever to break so to speak of a lot and this is my phrase not not his um that i mean people are panicked right now they're going in they're buying up everything in sight uh that if they let people do this the first week or two, then people are going to realize, hey, you know, it's really not that bad. And of course, those people are not going to have to go back to the grocery store. So when the sane people go back to the grocery store, there will be groceries there. What they genuinely do not want to do is send a signal to anyone that there aren't enough groceries and there isn't enough of a supply. And if they begin restricting, uh, then that's going to signal to people that we're on hard times and there are shortages, and there really aren't any. Uh, we've got in in frozen vegetables and paper products in storage and in um, meat, frozen meats uh, that are used by grocery stores for their refrigerated section even. We've got an 11-month supply already. In fact, we have more right now paper products and meat products in storage than we had last year from manufacturers. So there's no reason to panic about it. Uh, even with, with the buying rates we're seeing right now, they say we've got an 11 month supply. Uh, and these are from the manufacturers, not from the government. So I wouldn't panic about it. And I'm, I'm not hoarding. I know people, I've seen people who are, uh, my Publix, uh, people typically aren't, but I've seen people at Walmart and, and Kroger doing it. Uh, and it is annoying and they're dumb for doing it. But you know, if they're thinking, Hey, we've got this virus that's going to kill a million of us. I probably Probably better go buy everything in sight and wait for the zombie apocalypse, which given the way the news is trying to scare people, and there's a fine line there. I do think the news is probably crossing over into too much scare right now. We'll see. Now, on the stimulus, I mentioned this in the first hour. Let me get back into this. The, the Republican plan is terrible and needs to die. Uh, the Republican plan is really, really, really bad. What the Republican plan would do would be to give $1,000 checks to people, $1,200 checks to people, an extra $500 if you have kids, uh, and would tap them out at $99,000, taking into account no cost of living issues. And you would have to, it would be based on your 2018 taxes. So if you didn't file taxes in 2018 or you had a banner year in 2018 and you're broke now, you're screwed. Um, And that's a problem. Uh, Basing it off of the 2018 taxes and not taking into account the cost 
cost of living. Uh, you know, this is really a fine time for Republicans in the Senate to suddenly say, oh, hey, I- I'm 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 worried about our fiscal recklessness over the last few years. I mean, Republicans in Washington, D.C. have been spending like drunken sailors for 10 years now to suddenly face a crisis and say, ah, we, we really can't pay people who get $100,000 a year, a $1,000 check uh, while they're sitting at home. Nope, we can't do that, even though they live in San Francisco and are basically poor on $100,000, which for you and me is insane. Let's just acknowledge uh, for us to say $100,000 a year, it makes you poor in San Francisco. It does. You can't live in San Francisco on that amount of money. And that I, that doesn't even make sense to me. But I know it's true. Uh, it's, it is crazy how how little you can buy in San Francisco when you make that much a year. Um, but you have to remember, you got state taxes and you got local taxes and you got federal taxes. You know, so when I go do Bill Maher's show on HBO, it's the craziest thing. When I get, they pay me to be on that show. Um, and I they, they fly me out there. I get a check. I come home. Well, and they send me a check like two weeks later. And it's crazy. You got county taxes in Los Angeles, you've got state taxes in Los Angeles, you've got Georgia taxes, and you got federal taxes. In California, your city, your county, and your state, they all got an income tax, it seems like, and, and they all take it out. And so you're in you're in San Francisco, you gotta pay San Francisco income taxes, you gotta pay California income taxes, you gotta pay federal income taxes. It is ridiculously expensive. And you're you're living in a four hundred square foot studio apartment that's uh three thousand dollars a month. It's insane. The, the plan that doesn't take into account the stimulus, it's just, it, it's, it's a terrible idea. It is a terrible idea. And, and we need to be careful of the Republicans rolling this out. Ed, I'm going to go to you next. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much, Eric. I just wanted to comment that uh, I think it's pretty amazing that uh, our present administration has fully, uh, pretty fully come out uh, with democratic socialism as a solution to averting the economic impact of the coronavirus crisis. You know, so Ed, I would disagree with you to this regard, and I've talked to this with a number of my friends. I look at it more as eminent domain. Uh, the government has come out and said, you've got to stay in your house. Your schools have to be shut down. You, you can't send your kids to school and you can't go to work. Uh, and so they're taking your life away from you right now and your job away from you right now. And, and small businesses, they're taking their businesses away. And so they deserve just compensation. Uh, I, I don't know that we can look at their handling of the crime. And by the way, I, I'm not going to defend a lot of what they're doing, because as I just said, I think a lot of it is terrible. But I, I do think there's a difference between a crisis where the government is forcing businesses to shut down and put people out of work versus your standard operating procedure. If I, I by the way, we should all be horrified that yesterday in the White House press briefing, the president and Larry Kudlow said they're not opposed to taking equity positions in companies that need a bailout. That's what communist Chinese do. We don't need to do that. That is terrible. And Ed is absolutely right on that point. We do not need our government to be taking equity positions in companies. But it's different between a crisis and normal times for the government is now coming out saying your business must shut down and your employees must stay at home and you must pay them whether you have revenue or not. And so the government now says, okay, here's a check so you can cover the payroll versus the government doing this at any, any day of the week. I, I hope that makes sense to everybody that this is essentially like the government coming and taking your private property. And the Constitution says if the government takes your private property, they've got to pay you uh, fair compensation. 
well, the government's coming and taking your private property contract rights away and taking your, your livelihood away from you right now. So the government does, I think, need to compensate people for taking their private property rights away, their contract rights away, their businesses away, and their livelihoods away, all in the name of stopping this virus. I, I think there's a fundamental difference there we do need to keep in mind. Well, Senator Richard Burr has released a statement that I think is is deeply problematic for him. Uh, His statement reads, I relied solely on public news reports to guide my decision regarding the sale of stock on February 13th. Specifically, I closely followed CNBC's daily health and science reporting out of its Asia bureaus at the time, understanding the assumption many could make in hindsight. However, I spoke this morning with the chairman of the Senate Ethics Committee and asked him to open a complete review of the matter with full transparency. So so uh, Kelly Leffler is saying she has independent people now taking care of her portfolio so that she is disentangled from ethics. Um, and Richard Burr is admitting he made the trades himself. Uh, that That's pretty stunning. And I don't know how he survives the storm, particularly right now. People are mad. People are mad. There is a sense that other people are benefiting uh, or have it easier than them right now. Um, jealousy sets in, among other things. Um, let me read you this out of the out of the New York Post. I, I find somewhat funny. Um, it, it's all out class warfare in the Hamptons. The year-round residents, the locals who serve and clean and landscape for the super rich in the summertime and put up with all manner of entitlement and terrible behavior in exchange for good money, are silent no more. There's not a vegetable to be found in this town right now, said one resident of Springs, a working-class pocket of East Hampton. It's these elite people who think they don't have to follow the rules. It's not just the drastic food shortage out here. Every aspect of life, most crucially medical care, is under strain from the sudden influx of rich Manhattanites panic fleeing, bringing along their disdain and their disregard for the little people, and in some cases, knowingly bringing the virus. The Springs resident says her friend, a nurse out here, reported that a wealthy Manhattan woman who tested positive called tiny Southampton Hospital to say she was on her way and needed treatment. The woman was told to stay in Manhattan. Instead, she allegedly got on public transportation, telling no one of her condition, then showed up at a Southampton hospital demanding admittance. Someone else took a private jet to East Hampton and did not tell anybody till he had landed. That's the most horrendous aspect. The virus is already here and we don't even have medical resources for it. We're at the end of long Island, the tip, then waves of people are bringing this stuff, says uh, Montauker James Ketsipsis. We should blow up the bridges. Don't let them in. You know, they should go full Bane, blow up all the bridges around Manhattan and force the Manhattanites to stay there. <laughs> wow. I mean, we are seeing the dark night rises, are we not? Uh, we are seeing the dark night rises uh, into this. And Bane is the hero, by the way, in this version of the dark night rises, Bane is the hero, uh, keeping the rich folks trapped on Manhattan so they can't spread the virus and their disdain for the working class. To everyone else. Oh man. Meanwhile, I, I, I do think we are probably about to start seeing violence in grocery stores around this country because of the idiots who are going in and buying up everything. Uh, and, and, you know, can we be honest here? Gosh, this is so mean of me to say. You can kind of, you can kind of tell the people who are going to go in and buy up all the toilet paper. You just know when you see that person going in dressed in a particular way, you just look at that person and you think, yep, there's someone who thinks they're going to buy up all the toilet paper and resell it on eBay. You, You just, you just know. 
And I suspect we're going to have problems here. There is no shortage of anything, but these people are creating shortages by going in and buying up a bunch of stuff they're never even going to eat and ultimately are probably going to throw away. And that's the unfortunate part, the wasteful aspect of all of it. Hello and welcome. It is 11.06 a.m. We are less than an hour away from the updates on the spread of the virus in Georgia. I am. I see press reports now that Monroe County, Georgia, uh, is going to report its first case at noon. I hear Carroll County is, Effingham County is, and several others. Uh, I, I got asked to do this, and so I am. Um, I, I do think it makes sense to do the uh, daily update. It doesn't update until noon, but let me give you the info that I have right now. 287 cases and 10 deaths. Both of those numbers will be going up at noon, probably above 300 for cases. I want to explain that here in a minute. Uh, but here's the county-by-county county audit trail. Uh, 66 in Fulton, 37 Cobb, 26 Bartow, 22 DeCab, 20 in Darty, uh, 16 in Cherokee, 12 Gwinnett, 9 in Fayette, 8 in Clark, 6 in Lowndes, 6 in Floyd, 6 in Clayton, 5 in Hall, 4 in Gordon, 3 in each of these counties, Lee, Coweta, Paulding, Newton, Forsyth, Henry, and Early, that's Forsyth County, not Forsyth the city, uh, in Early County and Glenn County, also has two. Lawrence has two. Richmond and Troop both have two. And then one in each of these counties. Rockdale, Houston, Charlton, Whitfield, Polk, Columbia, Barrow, Bibb, Peach, and Muskogee. There are six people from counties we don't know. All of those counties probably are going to have in the next few days uh, increases. We know that the full, the metro Atlanta area is going to have a significant increase in large part because they're testing more. And this is one thing that the governor and the public health agencies have been telling people is don't panic right now about a big increase in Georgia over the next week. And the reason they don't want you to panic is because they know it's coming. They know that these cases are already here in many cases, and they... <laughs> I just saw something and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, it just popped up on my screen uh, while, while I was uh, looking at these covers. In any event, the governor and the public health officials have been telling people that because of the increase in the ramp up in testing, they know that this is going to be coming. Some of the things that public health officials have been doing is they've been using the flu test for a proxy for COVID-19. The reason is because so many of the symptoms are the same as the flu symptoms. So if you don't have the flu, but you have all the symptoms of the flu, you're presumed to have the virus right now. They can't test you. Well, the testing is now coming up. And because the testing is coming up, they are, um, they, they're, they're going to ramp up the testing and in ramping up the testing, they know the number is going to spike. The, again, they've been using the flu proxy. They can't report people and that to have COVID-19 who have flu-like symptoms and fail the flu test. They actually have to have the COVID-19 test. And until they have the COVID-19 test, they can't be placed in the list of people who have it. So they've got all these people who got the flu test, have the symptoms, tested negative. They're presumed to have COVID-19. But... Uh, it, it, it really is, uh, we're going to see this big bump up in Georgia and they know it's coming. They know it's here. This is one reason the governor is not shutting everything down right now and not freaking out. Certainly urban areas are doing it. He's relying on counties and municipalities to take the steps they need to make themselves feel safe. Uh, but he knows they're tracking the spread and barring any, if, if there is, for example, if there's all of a sudden a huge anomalous spike, 
when all the testing is ramped up that they didn't foresee, then they will take drastic action. But right now, they don't foresee needing to do this, which is in stark contrast, for example, to what uh, Gavin Newsom is doing in California. In California, Newsom, I think he's actually done a fairly good job. I'm I'm not a fan of the guy, but I got to give him credit. He's done a fairly good job. He hasn't been uh, malicious out there attacking the president or anything like that. He's he's been competent, but uh, he's decided to put the entire state on lockdown. And he's putting the whole state on lockdown because um, he's worried about the spread and he's worried about taxing hospital resources if it continues to spread at the rate it's spreading. But he made the mistake of saying uh, something like millions of people are going to get it. It's like 58% of the population could get it and millions die in California. And there are people who are going to do that who are thinking, all right, I'm already in my house. I'm already limiting contact. I'm already not going to work. My kids are not going to school. And yet you're still telling me 58% of us are going to get it and, and a million of us are going to die. What's the point? And that's the way it was interpreted. What he actually meant was that if in the worst case scenario, that's what would happen. And he says, he followed up later by saying that what they're doing now should prevent that. And by going on further lockdown, it'll definitely prevent it. But the soundbite that's circulating in the media is all about he's going to get everybody in Los Angeles. Everybody's going to die anyway, no matter what they do. And that I think is is bad, and he's going to really need to set the record straight. Now, uh, let, let's let's move on from him. I, I want to play this from Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, who was doing an MSNBC interview, rocking their world with some of the stuff he said. Uh, this is actually an interview with Lester Holt that was conducted on MSNBC. Is there something about the, the, the demographic makeup of Italy versus the United States that that would suggest a different outcome when it gets here on a, at a large scale? Larger scale? No, you know what? You know, that's a great question, Mr. Holt. The reason I, I, I think that there's a real problem, one of the things we did right was very early cut off travel from, from China to the United States. Because outside of China, where it originated, the countries in the world that have it are through travel either directly from China or indirectly from someone who went someplace and then came to that particular country. Our shutting off travel from China and more recently travel from Europe has gone a long way to not seeding very, very intensively the virus in our country. Unfortunately, Italy did not do that. They had an open border. They let people in. And until they really knew that we were in trouble, then the cat was out, the horse was out of the barn, and that was it. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci again commending the president after so many in the media blew him up. A little more from Fauci in various interviews. Since we now have people who have recovered from the coronavirus, is it possible to develop some sort of treatment using the antibodies that they developed as a response to the disease? Didn't they do something along those lines with Ebola? Good question, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Very good question. As a matter of fact... That's exactly what we're doing. We're gearing up for a study of both convalescent serum, which is a big word to say, taking the serum from someone who's completely recovered, getting it in a way that you can reinfuse it in somebody else, or getting out the proteins, the gamma globulin, the antibodies from that serum, and use it as a way of both treatment and possibly prophylaxis, but mostly treatment. Very good question. It's one of our top priorities. 
Now, yesterday I mentioned there's there have now been a couple of studies that have come out about uh, hydroxychloroquine sulfate. Uh, hydroxychloroquine sulfate uh, is an anti-malarial medicine, and it has shown to also be able to help against viruses, rheumatoid arthritis, and lupus. And in France and in South Korea, they found that 100% of people who were given a combination of hydrochloroquine sulfate and ZPAC, uh, erythromycin, recovered within six days regardless of their condition. It was a very small study of people, though, who it was done with. And you're wondering, well, wait a second, this is a virus. How would a ZPAC work? Uh, what their speculation is in the study that they rushed out was that the ZPAC was helping people's immune systems rebound, uh, building some immunity strength to keep other stuff from, from causing problems while the hydrochloroquine uh, was working on uh, the virus itself. And Teva, which is a, um, it's an Israeli pharmaceutical company, but they, they've got a, a U.S. distributor. They are going to donate 6 million tablets of hydrochloroquine sulfate. They own the tablet on it. Uh, they're going to donate 6 million tablets through wholesalers to hospitals by March 13th, and they will have more than 10 million tablets donated within a month. Uh, here's the press release, actually. Uh, Teva Pharmaceutical announced today the immediate donation of more than 6 million doses of hydrochloroquine sulfate tablets through wholesalers to hospitals throughout the U.S. to meet the urgent demand for the medic medicine as an investigational target to reach uh, treat COVID-19. The company's also looking at additional ways to address the global need. Additional production of hydrochloroquine sulfate tablets is being assessed and subsequently ramped up with materials that are being sent to Teva from ingredient suppliers as hydrochloroquine sulfate tablets uh, are approved by the FDA for treatment of malaria, lupus, and rheumatoid arthritis. The product is not currently approved for use in COVID-19. It's under investigation for efficacy, and the company is reviewing supply of both hydrochloroquine and chloroquine globally. Now, Fauci was asked about this because these studies have come out, and here's what he had to say. A question about something that happened today, uh, Dr. Fauci. The president said that the FDA will fast-track antiviral treatments for patients with coronavirus, uh, saying that an anti-malarial drug would be made available. And he said, um, he said that the drug would be made available almost immediately. Um, when, we, when the public hears that, and obviously there's a lot of interest, a lot of hope in this, how much confidence should we put in that? And, and do we know that that drug would even work? Because, as you know, uh, FDA Commissioner Hahn, he, he sort of, he didn't go that far. No, no. So, so let, let me put it into perspective for the viewers, uh, and, 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 and perhaps we'll understand it better. There is a drug, two drugs, they're, they're very similar, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. They've been used for decades for malaria, as well as for the treatment of certain autoimmune diseases like lupus. It's a very mm -hmm. inexpensive drug. It's tried and true. It's been around for a long time. There's been anecdotal, non-proven, anecdotal data that it works. When people give it to someone, it makes them better. But when you have an uncontrolled trial, you can never dis definitively say that it works. In addition, there's been some in vitro data in the test tube. You put hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine in with the virus, it tends to uh, impede the virus. It's done that with a number of other viruses. What was said today at the press conference, this is an already approved drugs. So it could be available, for example, when you mm -hmm. use it off label, which means somebody uses it for a purpose that it wasn't officially proved for. What the president was saying is that we're gonna look at all of these drugs and we're gonna try to get them available in the context 
of some sort of a protocol where you just don't distribute drugs willy nilly. You may make it more accessible than you would have previously, but you do it in the context to at least get some feel for both safety and whether it works. That was the message about the malaria drug, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. There you have it from Dr. Fauci, the actual expert on this. The, the president very much does say uh, that he wants to get this out there as quickly as he can. One more piece of health data out there. And a lot of this stuff, again, is it's new and the media is rushing to get this information out there. But I got to say they're doing a fairly good job of being reasonable in how they get it out uh, so that people have as much fact-based information as they can. It's one reason, by the way, I'm doing these emails every day where I'm compiling information and sending it to everyone so that you have a sense of what is true and what is not true, uh, what is speculation and what is uh, informed speculation at this point, because there's a lot of speculation out there about a lot of stuff uh, going on. Uh, Some of it is reasonable. Some of it is not. And I want to make sure that everybody has the reasonable information out there. If you want it, uh, text the word data to 33777, and I'm going to send you back a link. uh, EWErickson.substack.com is the link. And you can click it. You'll see a subscribe page and just put in your email address. You don't have to pay. And you will get a regular updated email from me on all the information we have. However, however, there is more in-depth stuff. It's $7 if you want to pay for the more in-depth stuff. And and I'm trying to not be, for those of you who you're listening to the program, but you're not a conservative and you don't want to get a bunch of stuff that you would consider conservative propaganda. I'm trying to leave the politics out of the the, uh, free email. I just want to give people the facts so you stay informed about what's going on out there. Um, I'm, and if you want if you want to get the inside stuff, uh, the view from the White House, the, what what my sources are telling me or whatnot, you can pay uh, the seven bucks for that. But the, the email is otherwise free. I don't want to profit off this virus. Text the word data to 33777. Uh, one more here from uh, what some new studies are saying. New Chinese study implies that gastrointestinal issues could be one of the first signs of the coronavirus. The study looked at 204 patients at the epicenter of the virus outbreak. 99 arrived at the hospital complaining of one or more digestive systems, while 92 others developed respiratory symptoms along with digestive symptoms. The patients with just the digestive issues became more seriously ill. The study was published Thursday by the American Journal of Gastroenterology. There you have it, uh, as more signs develop. Now, what do we know in particular? In particular, what we know is that the very first symptom that tends to develop is a dry cough and a fever. And everybody who gets it more or less, uh, 90%, I shouldn't say everybody, but about 85 to 90% of people who get the virus get a fever. Not everyone gets every other symptom. Uh, if you have a fever and a dry cough, though, uh, you do you don't want to show up at a doctor's office and you don't want to show up at a hospital. What you want to do is you want to call ahead and say uh, you you've got a fever and you've got a dry cough. Can you be helped? Um, you call your lo- call your local hospital. Don't call nine one one. Call the general line. Call your doctor's office, or you can call Quest or um, what's the other one? LabCorp. Quest and LabCorp are doing these tests. But call. Don't show up. Call them and tell them that you're having cough and dry cough and fever. 
a lot of people right now in Georgia and elsewhere in the South have a dry cough, but it's allergies. And if you got a bunch of snot in your nose or fluid in your ear, you probably have allergies. Uh, but if you got the dry cough and you have the fever, uh, then you want to to call ahead. You don't want to show up. And frankly, if your symptoms aren't terrible, you don't want to show up because you don't want to overwhelm the system right now as a lot of people are starting to overwhelm the systems. A buddy of mine sent me this and <laughs> made me laugh. If COVID-19 forces Planned Parenthood to be closed for two weeks, the virus will have saved more lives than it has taken. That is a, a very fair. <laughs> That's a fair point. It is a fair point. Oh, well, Tulsi Gabbard has decided to drop out of the race. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, is has endorsed Joe Biden, which is kind of funny because the libertarians adored her. And now she's rushing off to endorse Joe Biden, which a lot of them are now very angry about and feel like is a great betrayal of uh, the values that she claimed to stand for on the campaign trail. They are really upset about it. Uh, and you know, Sanders is not dropping out. He says he's going to reassess, but he actually blew up at a reporter the other day and used the F bomb to say he was focused on the virus, not the campaign. And Elizabeth Warren has come out and said she's addressing, uh, endorsing nobody. She's focused on the virus. So yeah, there you have it. I got to play this clip uh, about the president. I find this very funny. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's nice of him to, to be so blunt with some reporters in the White House press corps. Siding with state propaganda. Well, I think they do. I mean, I mean, they are siding with, they are siding with China. They are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. They're siding with many others. China is the least of it. So why, why they're doing this, uh, you'll have to ask them. But if we had an honest media in this country, our country would be an even greater place. Now, one more clip from him that I just find hilarious that he went there. Say a few days ago, though, you did have a sense that this was a pandemic that was coming. So why was the United States not prepared with more testing? We were very prepared. Uh, the only thing we weren't prepared for was the uh, the media. The media has not treated it fairly. I'll tell you how prepared I was. Uh, I called for a ban from people coming in from China long before anybody thought it was. In fact, it was your network. I believe they call me a racist because I did that. Uh, it was many of the people in the room, they call me racist and other words uh, because I did that, because I went so early. So when you say we weren't prepared, had I let these tens of thousands of people come in from China a day, we would have had something right now that would have been, uh, you wouldn't have even recognized it compared to where we are. How many people have passed away? How many people have died as of this moment? You could multiply that by a factor of many, many, many. So when you say that I wasn't prepared, I was the first one to do the ban. Now other countries are following what I did. But the media doesn't acknowledge well, that. They, they know it's true. They know it's true, but they don't want to write about it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, look, I think it was I think it was good of the president to push that point forward because they did call him racist. Uh, this was during impeachment. He stopped all travel with China. He's now been commended by public health experts. And back in January, the World Health Organization and MSNBC were attacking him, saying it was racism and an anti-China policy that a lot, that got him to do this. One more clip of the president before we go to break uh, on his thinking on the stimulus. There there are some updates I'll get to you after the break, but let me play this for you, Mr. President. Uh Switching to the, uh, the the efforts to boost the economy with the measures before Congress, 
Will you guarantee that the money, the billions, the tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars even that's going to go uh, to these industries will not go to executive bonuses or to more stock buybacks? Well, we don't want that. In fact, some companies, as you know, did stock buybacks, and I was never happy with that. Uh, it's very hard to uh, tell them not to, but I would tell them not to. I would say I don't like it for that reason. Some did, and it turned out that they could have waited a long time. It would have been much better off if they didn't. Uh, you can make it a condition of the bill. You can say that none of this money can go for that. I'm making, uh, I mean, you know, it takes uh, many, many people in this case to tango. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, that uh, conditions like that would be okay with me. Now, when we come back, I want to give you an update. Uh, they're still doing this. Also, I heard from Senator Perdue's office, just to let you guys know one of the things he's tied up with. Got a bunch of Georgia students stuck in Peru he's trying to get home. Uh, man, this thing, global implications. Well, this just happened. I want to make sure you get it. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, the phone number, if you want to call in and be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, Kelly Leffler went on Fox News to address the concerns about her. Here you go. Because I do want to set the record straight. I've seen some of those stories, and it's absolutely false, and it could not be true. So if you actually look at the personal transaction reports that were filed, it notices at the bottom that I'm only informed of my transactions after they occur, several weeks. So certainly those transactions, okay. at least on my behalf, were a mix of buys and sells, very routine for my portfolio. Because I do... Very routine for her portfolio. It was a lot of money. Now, here's the thing. Um, she does show, in fact... Uh, she's got the documents. She's put them online. Transactions notified. Transactions notified to filer on or after February sixteenth, twenty twenty. She bought and sold a number of things um, in in listed in her portfolio. But as reporters point out, this doesn't show that um, it, it does not show that she didn't reach out to her broker and give them instructions. And she's going to need to document that, that she was not instructing her broker to do this for her. Uh, it very much is um, a case where she needs to get everything out there as quickly as she can and show that she had no control over this. If she's got to get affidavits from people to show this, uh, she needs to work overtime to to do that uh needs fundamentally to make sure she's out there uh and on top of the story they're going to eat her alive uh i want to shift gears uh if, for a moment if you will because i continue to get these conversations with people uh have you ever read the screw tape letters it's a you can google it online and, and it's um you can find it online the, the entire text of it you don't have to buy it uh there in fact I, there's a pdf that i often refer to i want to read you one of them because I keep getting these conversations that they, they come up from people and there's a point my favorite of if you're not familiar with the screw tape letters uh, it's a CS Lewis work from the World War II and it's written the way Lewis constructed this is letters between a demon named screw tape and wormwood who is uh, being taught by screw tape how to be an effective demon Wormwood is not quite competent, and Screwtape is advising Wormwood on how to essentially ensnare a person to hell. And I want to read you the 15th of the Screwtape letters right now. 
I had noticed, of course, that the humans, my dear Wormwood, I had noticed, of course, that the humans were having a lull in their European war, what they naively called the war, and I'm not surprised that there is a corresponding lull in the patient's anxieties. Do we want to encourage this or to keep him worried? Tortured fear and stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. Our choice between them raises important questions. The humans live in time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. It is alone freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means concerned with himself, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. Our business is to get them away from the eternity and from the present. With this in view, we sometimes tempt a human, say a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value, for they have some real knowledge of the past, and it has a determinative, determinate nature, and to that extent resembles eternity. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already, so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them, so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time. For the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence the encouragement we have given to all those schemes of thought, such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, or communism, which fix men's affections on the future on the very core of temporality. Hence nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, and ambition all look ahead. Do not think lust an exception. When the present pleasure arrives, the sin, which alone interests us, is already over. The pleasure is just the part of the process which we regret and would exclude if we could do so without losing the sin. It's the part contributed by the enemy, the enemy being God in this case, uh, screw tape is a demon. And therefore experienced in the present, the sin, which is our contribution, looked forward to be sure the enemy wants men to think of the future too, just not just so much as is necessary for now planning the acts of justice or charity, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. The duty of planning tomorrow's work is today's duty. Though its material is borrowed from the future, the duty, like all duties, is in the present. This is not straw splitting. He doesn't want men to give the future their heart to place their treasure in it. We do. His idea is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, if that's his vocation, washes his mind to the whole subject, commits, it, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded of the moment that is passing over him. But we want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell on earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present if by doing so we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he will not live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest nor kind nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future every grill gift which is offered them in the present. It follows then in general, and other things being equal, 
that it is better for your patient to be filled with anxiety or hope, doesn't matter which, about this war than for him to be living in the present. But the phrase living in the present is ambiguous. It may describe a process which is really just as much concerned with the future as anxiety itself. Your man may be untroubled about the future, not because he's concerned with the present, but because he's persuaded himself the future is going to be agreeable. As long as that is the real course of his tranquility, his tranquility will do us good because it is only piling up more disappointment and therefore more impatience for him when his false hopes are dashed. If, on the other hand, he's aware that horrors may be in store for him and is praying for the virtues wherewith to meet them, and meanwhile concerning himself with the present, because there and there alone all duty, all grace, all knowledge, and all pleasure dwell, his state's very undesirable and should be attacked at once. Here again, our philological arm has done good work. Try the word complacency on him. But of course, it is most likely that he is living in the present for none of these reasons, but simply because his health is good and he is enjoying his work. The phenomenon would then be merely natural. All the same, I'd break it up if I were you. No natural phenomenon is really in our favor in any way. Why should this human creature be happy? Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. That's the 15th of the Screwtape letters. What is Screwtape actually saying here? He, he's saying that it is really easy to get people to dwell in the past or the future. And that if you can get people, even in the present, to worry about the future, you can get them to fall out of appreciation of what's going on around them at that instant. And it is in that instant, right now, here we are, stuck in our houses, uh, where we can most appreciate our families, we can appreciate our creation, our God, uh, you name it. Uh, but if we're worried about tomorrow, if we're worried about will there be shortages at the grocery store tomorrow, will this virus continue to spread, will someone in my family get it, uh, we're going to be a ball of knots. We're, we're, we're going to be all stressed out. We're not going to be able to, to understand. We're not going to be able to appreciate. We're not going to be able to enjoy there are plenty of present moments, even while we're stuck at home and, and seeing everything around us and hearing the news reports, there are plenty of present moments to enjoy. And so you've got to be careful not to look at that. You've also got to be careful not to dwell on the past. You know, one of the, one of the things that, that Lewis has pointed out and what Screwtape points out of the Screwtape letters is you, you keep someone living in the past, well, then they're bitter towards the present because the present time, everyone who lives in the past glows with the past and thinks the past is better than the present. And so they're always disappointed in the present. If you live in the future, if you live in the future, then what happens is you start, uh, you're always expecting of the future. When the future gets there, the future becomes the present. You become disappointed because it's never going to be like you want it. And so you got to live in the present. If you live in the present, you appreciate the present realities. You, you assess the realism and you can plan realistically for what's going to go on. It doesn't mean you can't think, okay, uh, I may not be able to go out at all next week if I need to do a grocery list. And before I do a grocery list, I need to do a meal list. Here are the meals I'm going to cook and here are the leftovers I'm going to eat next week. Now here's my grocery list and I'm going to go shop. But that's a far cry from thinking uh, doom and despair are coming. I better go buy every roll of toilet paper because I'm never going to leave again because the zombie apocalypse is upon us. There are people who just can't enjoy the present because their mind spins towards the future or they anchor themselves so far in the past. And times like this are the times that build the greatest anxiety on people. And some people get mad at God. God, why is this happening? God can't be real if this is happening. 
Why am I being punished? Why is why does my family have it? Uh, why does my neighbor have it? Why can't I go to church? Why can't I go to the restaurant? Why is the business going out of business? Why, why am I out of a job? And, and it's anxious and fear. We blame God. We blame other people. We go to the grocery store. We see the idiots who are overbuying stuff. We can tell when we go to the grocery store. I know that person's going to be the hoarder. And you get mad at them. And you get all spun up and wrapped up. And that becomes a problem. Becomes a real problem. And so I'm just going to tell you, anchor yourself in the present. Be realistic about the future. Plan for the future. Think about what you got to do next week. Think about the groceries and the meals and the things like that. But don't get spun up. Don't don't think, well, tomorrow we're all going to die or tomorrow we're all going to be fine. We have no idea. Just live in the present. You know, I have a hard time, too, with that. Because I really want to grow this radio show. I, I want it to be picked up by other stations in the state. I want to grow outside the state. I have visions of what it should look like. And it's okay to plan. It's okay to come up with a vision of this is what I want it to look like. And here are the steps I'm going to take. But to live in the fantasy of what reality might be like as opposed to living in the reality and, and thinking about what I might be able to do in the future to get to where I want to go, they're two different things. And to a lot of people, they're the same thing, and they're not. And at a time like this, where a lot of us are having to be kept in our houses and away from other people and outside the sense of community and all that, becomes really problematic. Dwell in the present, not the past or the future. Don't panic about what might happen tomorrow. You have no way of knowing. You can prepare, but there's no reason to panic. Jim, calling from Decatur. You're going to be next. Welcome. Well, thank you, Eric. Well, that was a lot of heady information that had to be crammed into a short span of time. And if, if you, anybody would like to hear a little more stretched out version, a little different pace of it, John Cleese of Monty Python recorded the entire Screwtape Letters. And I can't tell you how much I love listening to him read those letters. You know, I, I've actually got that audio, and I'm, I totally forgot about it. Uh, I've actually got it buried in iTunes, and you're right. He does such a good job. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, thanks for bringing that out, because probably few things are as applicable as that particular letter right this minute, uh, yeah. this present moment. I agree. Jim, thanks very much for the phone call. You know, honestly, and you could probably tell as I read it, it actually is one of my favorite lines ever written by C.S. Lewis. His ideal man, uh, that's God, his ideal man is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, washes his mind of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that has passed over him. But we, that is the devil, once a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by doing so we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose ends he will not live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, never kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future every real gift, which is offered them in the present. That is, we want people miserable now, thinking we got to take every good thing we have right now and apply it to the future, never enjoying it in the present. And that is our temptation at times like this. And don't do that. Enjoy the present. Every one of you, listen, in 
the Erickson House Middle School right now, uh, we're trying to get the teachers to avoid alcoholism as they try to teach kids math. Uh, I And I listen, I understand these things. I do. At the same time, you're home with your kids more likely than not. Enjoy them. You, you're, you're out of your office for a little bit. See if you can enjoy it. The weather outside, it's not bad today. See if you can enjoy it. Take five minutes, just five minutes, and try to find some enjoyment right now instead of worrying about whether the virus is going to spread or what the count's going to be at noon or anything like that. Just try to find some way to enjoy it and, and try to find some way to commune with nature if you can away from people. And, and if you can this weekend, try to go to church um, or, or try to interact with other people in some way via phone or, or message. Uh, we are not meant to be alone. And some of us in the confines of our homes really are alone right now, streaming Netflix or YouTube or whatever. But we do need human interaction, even if we got to stand six feet away from other people. On the prior conversation, uh, a, a wise, wise soul just texted me and said, in the New Testament, the present is the indicative, the, the tense of reality. The future in all areas are those removed from reality. Faith embraces the future through the promises of God, which are certain. Uh, lots of wisdom in that. Now, there's wisdom in our federal government right now, and one of the things they've done, which I just find hilarious, I mentioned people staying home and watching Netflix. So you're in Europe. You know, we've been told by the left now for a number of years, we need internet just like Europe. Well, <laughs> we got everybody staying home right now, and in Europe, they're having to ask Netflix and YouTube and Hulu and Disney, I think Disney's over there now, to slow down their streaming and degrade the quality because so many people are home right now. Uh, in Europe, they have, they've gone overboard, and um, <laughs> that they, they demanded that Internet uh, be treated like public utilities, and they made all sorts of demands on them for net neutrality and stuff. And, you know, in this country, the Obama administration insisted on net neutrality. One of the things that made our system unique where we didn't have that set up is that the, the content providers and the Internet service providers have long had to work together in this country to make the network as efficient as possible so that the system's not overwhelmed. And as a result, Netflix can deliver 4K streaming in this country country without bogging down the internet service. Well, in Europe, they can't uh, because the government just mandated that there could be no discrimination there with, with content. And so there was never an incentive for the content providers to work efficiently. And now it's causing them all sorts of problems. So despite all the demands for net neutrality here, our, our network is holding up better than the European networks while every American is home streaming stuff. And my goodness, is there a lot to stream? My buddy Chris actually uh, texted me uh, yesterday and said I needed to watch the Great British Bake Off or whatever. I've I've seen the show on Netflix advertised and I've never watched it. Uh, believe it or not, uh, I don't like cooking competition shows, and I may give this one a try because he's not alone. Uh, I have multiple Chris friends. Most of them, other than Chris Burns, have told me I need to watch it, um, and I, I guess I do, but. I'm just, I've never been a cooking competition fan. You know, when, when I was younger and I, I loved to cook and my mom wondered why I didn't want to get a job as a chef. And I told her, uh, it wouldn't be fun anymore. If I had to cook all the time as a job, it wouldn't, it, it's what I do as a distraction and I didn't want to be a chef. And there are days now where I think, man, uh, if I don't finish up in seminary, uh, and right now I can't given all the radio stuff I'm doing. Um, if I don't finish up, maybe I just need to go open a restaurant, um, 
I, I always figure the reason I want to get finish getting my MDiv is because I want I really do enjoy preaching. I, I've I've filled in for pastors on occasion and I preached and I really do enjoy it a lot. I love ta- I love preaching and teaching uh, scriptural stuff way more than talking politics these days. And I've had the, the I've I've preached on a number of things, uh, and I enjoy it. And so I would love to finish up my MDiv, and I just don't have time right now, uh, given five hours of radio a day. And uh, I'm I've been working on my PhD in theology, and I'm having to move back into the master's program because independent study for me is just not good right now. I need a classroom, but I don't have time to go to classroom uh, doing doing a morning show and an evening show. So I got to figure out the work life balance to be able to get back to that at some point because I thoroughly enjoyed I, I enjoyed seminary way more. Than than I ever did. You know, the, the real reason I went to seminary is because I, I kept being asked. I spend so much time talking about faith and cultural issues. I kept being asked if I would fill in for preachers on, on Sundays at some small churches. And I said, nope, absolutely not. I'd never been to seminary. And that whole idea creeped me out. And I'm mindful of the admonition in the Bible that if you're, if you're a pastor, if you're a preacher, you don't want to lead people astray. And so I finally decided, you know, maybe this is God's way of saying go to seminary. So I went to seminary, but I went to Reform Theological Seminary. They've got a campus up in Marietta. And then some of these churches, they called back when they found out I was in seminary to ask. And when they found out I was going to reform seminary, they were like, eh, maybe not. Uh, the, the, the Armenians, um, the, the, they're not fans of us Calvinists. <laughs> but I, I've had several opportunities to, to fill in on weekends and preach, uh, and I enjoy it. But I got to tell you, I speak every day to you off the top of my head, five hours a day, three in the morning and two in the evening. Uh, and I give speeches to crowds of tens of thousands of people, fly all over the country giving speeches. Nothing intimidates me more than standing up in a church and preaching because souls are on the line, uh, not just politics. And, and that that intimidates me. And I got to make sure I'm doing a good job of it. So uh, th- this is, to some degree, this is my pulpit uh, to some of you. Uh, if you can, get to church this weekend, whether it's live streaming or something. Uh, but don't sever your contacts with your church. And remember, they're going to need your tithe. Even if you can't be in the door, they still got bills to pay. So don't forget to tithe this weekend. Even if you can't be in the physical building. Uh, 